Chapter Thirty Four of the Quest of the Silver Fleece. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. DuBose. Chapter Thirty Four. The Return of Alwyn. Bless Alwyn stared at Mrs. Harry Cresswell in surprise. He had not seen her since that moment at the ball, and he was startled at the change. Her abundant hair was gone, her face was pale and drawn, and there were little wrinkles below her sunken eyes. In those eyes lurked the tired look of the bewildered and the disappointed. It was in the lofty waiting room of the Washington station where Alwyn had come to meet a friend. Mrs. Cresswell turned and recognized him with genuine pleasure. He seemed somehow a part of the few things in the world, little and unimportant perhaps, that counted and stood firm, and she shook his hand cordially, not minding the staring of the people about. He took her bag and carried it towards the gate, which made the observers breathe easier, seeing him in servile duty. Some way, she knew not just how, she found herself telling him of the crisis in her life before she realized. Not everything, of course, but a great deal. It was much as though she were talking to someone from another world, an outsider, but one she had known long, one who understood. Both from what she recounted and what she could not tell, he gathered the substance of the story, and it bewildered him. He had not thought that white people had such troubles. Yet, he reflected, why not? They, too, were human. I suppose you hear from the school, he ventured after a pause. Why, yes, not directly, but Zora used to speak of it. Bless looked up quickly. Zora? Yes, didn't you see her while she was here? She has gone back now. Then the gate opened, the crowd surged through, sweeping them apart, and next moment he was alone. Alwyn turned slowly away. He forgot the friend he was to meet. He forgot everything but the field of the silver fleece. It rose shadowy there in the pale concourse, swaying in ghostly breezes. The purple of its flowers mingled with the silver radiance of tendrils that trembled across the hurrying throng, like threads of mist along low hills. In its mist rose a dark, slim, and quivering form. She had been here, here in Washington. Why had he not known? What was she doing? She has gone back now, back to the sun and the swamp, back to the burden. Why should he not go back, too? He walked on, thinking he had failed. His apparent success had been too sudden, too overwhelming. And when he faced the crisis, his hand had trembled. He had chosen the right, but the right was ineffective, impotent, almost ludicrous. It left him shorn, powerless, and in moral revolt. The world had suddenly left him, as the vision of Carrie Wynne had left him, alone, a mere clerk, an insignificant cog in the great grinding wheel of humdrum drudgery. His chance to do, and thereby to be, had not come. He thought of Zora again. 
Why not go back to the South where she had gone? He shuddered, as one who sees before him a cold, black pool, whither his path leads. To face the proscription, the insult, the lawless hate of the South again? Never. And yet he went home and sat down and wrote a long letter to Miss Smith. The reply that came after some delay was almost curt. It answered few of his questions, argued with none of his doubts, and made no mention of Zora. Yes, there was need of a manager for the new farm and settlement. She was not sure whether Alwyn could do the work or not. The salary was meager and the work hard. If he wished it, he must decide immediately. Two weeks later found Alwyn on the train facing southward in the Jim Crow car. How he had decided to go back south he did not know. In fact, he had not decided. He had sat helpless and inactive in the grip of great and shadowed hands. And the thing was as yet incomprehensible. And so it was that the vision Zora saw in the swamp had been real enough, and Alwyn felt strangely disappointed that she had given no sign of greeting on recognition. In other ways, too, Zora, when he met her, was to him a new creature. She came to him frankly and greeted him, her gladness shining in her eyes, yet looking nothing more than gladness and saying nothing more. Just what he had expected was hard to say, but he had left her on her knees in the dirt with outstretched hands, and somehow he had expected to return to some corresponding mental attitude. The physical change of these three years was marvelous. The girl was a woman, well-rounded and poised, tall, straight, and quick. And with this went mental change, a self-mastery, a veiling of the self, even in intimate talk, a subtle air, as of one looking from great and unreachable heights down on the dawn of the world. Perhaps no one who had not known the child and the girl as he had would have noted all this, but he saw and realized the transformation with a pang. Something had gone, the innocence and wonder of the child, and in their place had grown up something to him incomprehensible and occult. Miss Smith was not to be easily questioned on the subject. She took no hints and gave no information. And when once he hazarded some pointed questions, she turned on him abruptly, observing acidly, If I were you, I'd think less of Zora and more of her work. Gradually, in his spiritual perplexity, Alwyn turned to Mary Cresswell. She was staying with the Colonel at Cresswell Oaks. Her coming south was supposed to be solely for reasons of health, and her appearance made this excuse plausible. She was lonely and restless, and naturally drawn toward the school. Her intercourse with Miss Smith was only formal, but her interest in Zora's work grew. Down in the swamp, at the edge of the cleared space, had risen a log cabin, long, low, spacious, overhung with oak and pine. It was Zora's center for her settlement work. There she lived, and with her a half a dozen orphan girls and children too young for the boarding department of the school. Mrs. Cresswell easily fell into the habit of walking by here each day, coming down the avenue of oaks across the road and into the swamp. 
She saw little of Zora personally, but she saw her girls and learned much of her plans. The rooms of the cottage were clean and light, supplied with books and pictures, simple toys, and a phonograph. The yard was one wide green and golden playground, and all day the music of children's glad crooning and the singing of girls went echoing and trembling through the trees as they played and sewed and washed and worked. From the Cresswells and the Maxwells and others came loads of clothes for washing and mending. The Tolliver girls had simple dresses made, embroidery was ordered from town, and soon there would be the gardens and cotton fields. Mrs. Cresswell would saunter down of mornings. Sometimes she would talk to the big girls and play with the children. Sometimes she would sit hidden in the forest, listening and glimpsing and thinking, thinking, till her head whirled and the world danced red before her eyes. Today she rose wearily, for it was near noon, and started home. She saw Alwyn swing along the road to the school dining room, where he had charge of the students at the noonday meal. Alwyn wanted Mrs. Cresswell's judgment and advice. He was growing doubtful of his own estimate of women. Evidently, something about his standards was wrong. Consequently, he made opportunities to talk with Mrs. Cresswell when she was about, hoping she would bring up the subject of Zora of her own accord. But she did not. She was too full of her own cares and troubles, and she was only too glad of willing and sympathetic ears into which to pour her thoughts. Miss Smith soon began to look on these conversations with some uneasiness. Black men and white women cannot talk together casually in the South, and she did not know how far the North had put notions in Alwyn's head. Today, both met each other almost eagerly. Mrs. Cresswell had just had a bit of news which only he would fully appreciate. "'Have you heard of the Vanderpools?' she asked. "'No, except that he was appointed and confirmed at last.' "'Well, they had only arrived in France when he died of apoplexy. "'I do not know,' added Mrs. Cresswell. "'I may be wrong, and I hope I'm not glad.' Then there leaped into her mind a hypothetical question which had to do with her own curious situation. It was characteristic of her to brood and then restlessly to seek relief in consulting the one person near who knew her story. She started to open the subject again today. But Alwyn, his own mind full, spoke first and rapidly. He too had turned to her as he saw her come from Zora's home. He must know more about the girl. He could no longer endure this silence. Zora, beneath her apparent frankness, was impenetrable, and he felt that she carefully avoided him, although she did it so deftly that he felt rather than observed it. Miss Smith still systematically snubbed him when he broached the subject of Zora. With others he did not speak, the matter seemed too delicate and sacred, and he always had an awful dread, least sometime, somewhere, a chance a fatal word would be dropped, a breath of evil gossip which would shatter all. He had hated to obtrude his troubles on Mrs. Cresswell, who seemed so torn in soul, but today he must speak, although time pressed. Chapter 
Mrs. Cresswell, he began hurriedly, there's a matter, a personal matter, of which I have wanted to speak a long time. I... The dinner bell rang, and he stopped, vexed. Come up to the house this afternoon, she said. Colonel Cresswell will be away. Then she paused abruptly. A strange, startling thought flashed through her brain. Alwyn noticed nothing. He thanked her cordially and hurried toward the dining hall, meeting Colonel Cresswell on horseback just as he turned into the school gate. Mary Cresswell walked slowly on, flushing and paling by turns. Could it be that this Negro had dared to misunderstand her, had presumed? She reviewed her conduct. Perhaps she had been indiscreet in thus making a confidant of him in her troubles. She had thought of him as a boy, an old student, a sort of confidential servant, but what had he thought? She remembered Miss Smith's warnings of years before, and he had been north since, acquired northern notions of freedom and equality. She bit her lip cruelly. Yet she mused she was herself to blame. She had unwittingly made the intimacy, and he was but a negro, looking on every white woman as a goddess and ready to fawn at the slightest encouragement. There had been no one else here to confide in. She could not tell Miss Smith her troubles, although she knew Miss Smith must suspect. Harry Cresswell, apparently, had written nothing home of their quarrel. All the neighbors behaved as if her excuse of ill health were sufficient to account for her return, south to escape the rigors of a northern winter. Alwyn, and Alwyn alone, really knew. Well, it was her blindness and she must write it quietly and quickly, with hard, ruthless plainness. She blushed again at the shame of it. Then she began to excuse. After all, which was worse, a Cresswell or an Alwyn? It was no sin that Alwyn had done. It was simply ignorant presumption, and she must correct him firmly but gently, like a child. What a crazy muddle the world was! She thought of Harry Cresswell and the tale he told her in the swamp. She thought of the flitting ghosts that awful night in Washington. She thought of Miss Wynne, who had jilted Alwyn and given herself a very bad quarter of an hour. What a world it was, and after all, how far was this black boy wrong? Just then, Colonel Cresswell rode up behind and greeted her. She started almost guiltily, and again a sense of the awkwardness of her position reddened her face and neck. The colonel dismounted, despite her protest, and walked beside her. They chatted along indifferently of the crops, her brother's new baby, the proposed mill. Mary, his voice abruptly struck a new note. I don't like the way you talk with that Alwyn nigger. She was silent. Of course, he continued, you're northern-born, and you have been a teacher in this school and feel differently from us in some ways. But mark what I say. A nigger will presume on the slightest pretext, and you must keep them in their place. Then, too, you are a Cresswell now. She smiled bitterly. He noticed it, but went on. You are a Cresswell, even if you have caught Harry up to some of his deviltry. She started and got miffed about it. It'll all come out right. 
You're a Cresswell, and you must hold yourself too high to mister a nigger or let him dream of any sort of equality. He spoke pleasantly, but with a certain sharp insistence that struck a note of fear in Mary's heart. For a moment she thought of writing Alwyn not to call, but no, a note would be unwise. She and Colonel Cresswell lunched rather silently. "'Well, I must get to town,' he finally announced. "'The mill directors meet today. "'If Maxwell calls by about that lumber, "'tell him I'll see him in town.' "'And away he went. "'He had scarcely reached the highway "'and ridden a quarter of a mile or so "'when he spied Bless Alwyn "'hurrying across the field toward the Cresswell Oaks. "'He frowned and rode on. "'Then, reining in his horse, "'he stopped in the shadow of the trees "'and watched Alwyn.' It was here that Zora saw him as she came up from her house. She, too, stopped and soon saw whom he was watching. She had been planning to see Mr. Cresswell about the cut timber on her land. By legal right, it was hers, but she knew he would claim half, treating her like a mere tenant. Seeing him watching Alwyn, she paused in the shadow and waited, fearing trouble. She, too, had felt that the continued conversations of Alwyn and Mrs. Cresswell were indiscreet, but she hoped that they had attracted no one else's attention. Now she feared the colonel was suspicious, and her heart sank. Alwyn went straight toward the house and disappeared in the Oak Avenue. Still Colonel Cresswell waited, but Zora waited no longer. Alwyn must be warned. She must reach Cresswell's mansion before Cresswell did, and without him seeing her. This meant a long detour of the swamp to approach the oaks from the west. She silently gathered up her skirts and walked quickly and carefully away. She was a strong woman, lithe and vigorous, living in the open air and used to walking. Once out of hearing, she threw away her hat and, bending forward, ran through the swamp. For a while she ran easily and swiftly, then for a moment she grew dizzy, and it seemed as though she was standing still and the swamp in solemn grandeur marching past, in solemn mocking grandeur. She loosened her dress at the neck and flew on. She sped at last through the oaks, up the terraces, and slowing down to an unsteady walk, staggered into the house. No one would wonder at her being there. She came up now and then and sorted the linen, and piled the baskets for the girls. She entered a side door and listened. The colonel's voice sounded impatiently in the front hall. Mary. Mary? A pause, then an answer. Yes, father. He started up the front stairway, and Zora hurried up the narrow back stairs, almost overturning a servant. I'm after the clothes, she explained. She reached the back landing just in time to see Colonel Cresswell's head rising up the front staircase. With a quick bound, she almost fell into the first room at the top of the stairs. Bless Alwyn hurried through his dinner duties and hastened to the Oaks. The questions, the doubts, the uncertainty within him were clamoring for utterance. How much had Mrs. Cresswell ever known of Zora? What kind of woman was Zora now? Mrs. Cresswell had seen her and had talked to her and watched her. What did she think? 
Thus he formulated his questions as he went, half timid and fearful in putting them, and yet determined to know. Mrs. Cresswell, waiting for him, was almost panic-stricken. Probably he would beat round the bush, seeking further encouragement, but at the slightest indication she must crush him ruthlessly and at the same time point the path of duty. He ought to marry some good girl, not Zora, but someone. Somehow Zora seemed too unusual and strange for him, too inhuman, as Mary Cresswell judged humanity. She glanced out from her seat on the upper veranda, over the front porch, and saw Alwyn coming. Where should she receive him? On the porch and have Mr. Maxwell ride up? In the parlor and have the servants astounded and talking? If she took him up to her own sitting room, the servants would think he was doing some work or fetching something for the school. She greeted him briefly and asked him in. Good afternoon, Bless, using his first name to show him his place, and then inwardly recoiling at its note of familiarity. She preceded him upstairs to the sitting room, where, leaving the door ajar, she seated herself on the opposite side of the room and waited. He fidgeted, then spoke rapidly. Mrs. Cresswell, this is a personal affair. She reddened angrily. A love affair. She paled with something like fear. And I... She started to speak, but could not. I want to know what you think about Zora. About Zora, she gasped weakly. The sudden reaction, the revulsion of her agitated feelings, left her breathless. About Zora. You know I loved her dearly as a boy. How dearly I have only just begun to realize. I've been wondering if I understood, if I wasn't. Mrs. Cresswell got angrily to her feet. You have come here to speak to me of that, that, she choked, and Bless thought his worst fears realized. Mary, Mary, Colonel Cresswell's voice broke suddenly in upon them. With a start of fear, Mrs. Cresswell rushed out into the hall and closed the door. Mary, has that Alwyn nigger been here this afternoon? Mr. Cresswell was coming upstairs, carrying his riding whip. Why, no, she answered, lying instinctively, before she quite realized what her lie meant. She hesitated. That is, I haven't seen him. I must have nodded over my book, and looking toward the little veranda at the front of the upper hall, where her easy chair stood with her book. Then, with an awful flash of enlightenment, she realized what her lie might mean, and her heart paused. Cresswell strode up. I saw him come up. He must have entered. He's nowhere downstairs. He wavered and scowled. Have you been in your sitting room? And then, not waiting for a reply, he strode to the door. But the damned scoundrel wouldn't dare. He deliberately placed his hand in his right-hand hip pocket and threw open the door. Mary Cresswell stood frozen. The full horror of the thing burst upon her. Her own silly misapprehension, the infatuation of Alwyn for Zora, her thoughtless, no vindictive betrayal of him to something worse than death. She listened for the crack of doom. She heard a bird singing far down in the swamp. She heard the soft raising of a window and the closing of a door. And then, 
Great God in heaven, must she live forever in this agony? And then she heard the door bang and Mr. Cresswell's gruff voice. Well, where is he? He isn't in there. Mary Cresswell felt that something was giving way within. She swayed and would have crashed to the bottom of the staircase if just then she had not seen at the opposite end of the hall, near the back stairs, Zora and Alwyn emerge calmly from a room, carrying a basket full of clothes. Colonel Cresswell stared at them, and Zora instinctively put up her hand and fastened her dress at the throat. The colonel scowled, for it was all clear to him now. Look here, he angrily opened upon them. If you niggers want to meet around, keep out of this house. Hereafter, I'll send the clothes down. By God, if you want to make love, go to the swamp. He stamped down the stairs, while an ashy paleness stole beneath the dark bronze of Zora's face. They walked silently down the road together, the old familiar road. Alwyn was staring moodily ahead. We must get married before Christmas, Zora, he presently avowed, not looking at her. He felt the basket pause, and he glanced up. Her dark eyes were full upon him, and he saw something in their depth that brought him to himself and made him realize his blunder. Zora, he stammered, forgive me. Will you marry me? She looked at him calmly with infinite compassion, but her reply was uttered unhesitantly, distinct, direct. No bless. End of chapter 34 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas